the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, I had the good fortune this weekend of leading um, the retreat up at St. Andrew's Abbey. Uh, beautiful weekend to be uh, up at the Abbey, though I'm not sure if it could ever be a bad weekend to be at the Abbey. Um, and uh, it was built around my book, The Monkhood of All Believers, and we spent a lot of time yesterday talking about uh, asceticism, uh, and I thought that was appropriate in light of tonight's gospel reading, because uh, tonight's gospel reading, as you just heard, is one of those gospel readings where you kind of, you know, pull your collar back a little bit and go, wow, that's, that's pretty harsh, Jesus. I mean, you're talking about hating people and you know, and then you're talking about hating, hating my family. Um, so we need to unpack that, of course. So we need to think about exactly what Jesus is saying there. And we'll certainly do that, but not to the exclusion of the, of the other readings. And so um, to be Christian, to, to be a baptized Christian, means that we are to be ascetical people. Now, we probably all have ideas of what it means to be ascetical. Uh, mostly it sounds like something that hurts. Right? When we think like ascetical, asceticism, we think, oh, that's painful. Ascetical things are, are usually painful. So, for example, last year when Christine and I wanted to get ourselves kind of back in shape again, I wasn't used to getting up at 6. Now, for those of you that get up before 6, I know it's only 6 o'clock, but, but getting up at 6, that was, that was hard. I hated it. Matter of fact, I still don't like it because the time is changing again now, so it's not as light as it was even just a few weeks ago at 6 a.m., and Pretty soon I'm going to be running in the dark at 6, and I hate that. I hate, I, the dark is not made for humans to be alive. You know, we, we shouldn't be up when it's dark. That's just the way it, it works, you know. But, but or we think of like, uh, you know, like diets are painful. We think of, um, you know, even just forced fast maybe for medical reasons. You know, you're going to have your blood work done. You've got to fast for a number of hours or the night before. And so asceticism we often just associate with things that hurt, things that are painful. But that's not exactly true, but oftentimes it is. But the point is, is we're called as Christians to be ascetical people. And tonight's readings, I think, each one kind of addresses some aspect of what it means to be ascetical people. And again, it's, it's built into the warp and woof of what it means to be a Christian. So it's not so much that we choose uh, to be ascetical, but we're expected to be ascetical. I guess we could choose not to be, um, but we often are. And I think the first thing I want to say, not connected to any of these readings in particular, is the, the place where we really work out our asceticism is actually right here in the Eucharist. Because it's the one place where God says, I'm not actually interested in much of you coming into this space. Right? It's where we actually give up a lot of ourselves. Now, we do remember certain elements of ourselves, our sin life, for example, at the confession, uh, but we're reminded God loves us, right? But, you know, you don't like the song? That's okay. God didn't ask you to like it. He doesn't need you to like it. You don't like these readings? Well, that's, again, too bad. It's God's word, you know? So, again, it's the space we enter to give up a lot of ourselves, and so it's one of the most ascetical places that uh, that we are, but nonetheless, we're called to be ascetical all the time. And the first uh, thing I want to say about that from our reading from the Old Testament this evening is that uh, we are clay in the hands of God. So God is the potter, we're the clay. We are clay in the hands of God. Now, I've actually never tried my hand at, at throwing clay, as I believe they call it, um, but I've had students who, who did this as, as art majors and actually gifted me some really nice uh, really nice things as a result of their ability to 
uh, to take clay and make something uh, of it. But so in the analogy here, we're that moldable thing that is the clay. And God himself is the potter. Now, the image, it, it, we have to struggle a little bit with the image here because uh, the text tells us in verse 4 that the clay was spoiled in the potter's hand. So it sounds like God is the potter. What did God do wrong with the clay? Right? But I, I don't think that's so much the point. I mean, it, it does suggest to some extent that it's kind of God's fault. But, you know, we think of something like Job. Well, Job didn't do anything wrong, but yet God gave Satan permission to tempt him and afflict him. So, so it's not beyond God's ability to take an otherwise obedient lump of clay and, you know, kind of do something with it that's not, that's not beautiful and positive. It ends up being that way in the story of Job. But the point, I think, really is that we just need to focus on the fact that for whatever reason, the clay didn't work out originally the way it was supposed to, is that God, as the potter, will smash it all together again and start over. And the context, of course, is the Israelites, these people who were called to be God's holy people and, like us, are struggling and failing at that. So God regroups them, re-smashes that clay before it's set and been fired back together again so that he can do what? Work with it again. Right? And so in that sense, it's a positive image that until clay has been fired and set in its form, you can do something with it right? You can add water back into it, reshape it again. And so that should be something that we can take solace in, thinking like, okay, if I'm the clay in the hands of God, that although I might be disobedient, stubborn clay, hard to work with, barely able to be made into anything, right? The point is, is that that's not the end of the story, that God can take us and reshape us and remold us. And he, and he does do that. And he kind of does it over and over again. I mean, if we wanted to carry this this image forward, we would say something like, and until the eschaton, which again always has connotations of fire, that's when we're fired, you know, and kind of set when things are brought to their full consummation there at the eschaton. But in the meantime, we have this opportunity to be clay in the hands of God. That text reminded me of 2 Timothy 2.21, which says, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So our desire as clay, if you will, ought to be to be formed into an honorable vessel, something that's holy and can be used of God, something useful to the master of the house. So again, Timothy would be thinking in that analogy too of God as the master of the house and we as those vessels. So as God molds us and shapes us, what he wants from us is to be moldable people, right? He doesn't want us to, to be a stubborn lump of clay that he can't do anything with, but instead to be, to be moldable, to allow him as the potter to mold us into something beautiful. The nicest thing that I personally own made out of clay that was handmade is the coffee mug that I was gifted when I graduated from St. John's School of Theology. Uh, St. John's uh, happens to have one of the world's most well-known uh, ceramicists um, working on the campus, and he spends all year making things, and then they, it's the world's largest wood-fired kiln. Um, so once a year, maybe twice, they have a big party, right, get all the alumni out, fire up this kiln, and for days they fire 
what has been made and waiting to be fired for months and months and months. And so he has made, and I always forget his name, I should have written it down, but um, he made a bunch of mugs uh, that are stamped on the bottom with SOT, School of Theology. So the only way you can get one of those is by graduating from the School of Theology. Uh, some of you maybe have heard uh, me share this before. Actually, I've, I've had two, because Christina broke the first one, um, days after I got it, when she accidentally knocked it off the counter, and they graciously gave me another one. Um, now, you can buy them in the bookstore there, but they don't have SOT stamped on the bottom, so it's, my most, it's the most precious thing I own, mostly because I worked hard for that, that, that ceramic mug, and it was made by someone of some notoriety for being a ceramicist. But again, as I, as I look at that, and I actually don't drink out of it, I just, I, I, it's there to look at. So, um, you know, well, why would I? I've got plenty of other throwaway mugs to drink out of, so I drink out of the nice ones. So, um, but as I, as I notice that every now and then sitting on the shelf, I, I think about how that went from clay and then how it was in the hands of this well-known ceramicist and then a potter and now, you know, sits on my shelf and uh, could, in fact, be used to drink things out of if I chose. But again, it's, it's a vessel now that can be useful and used for something honorable, I trust. And so that's what God wants of us. He wants us to be that clay. And that involves some level of asceticism because it's less of me and more of God working me into a vessel that he can use. So that's the first image, and maybe that sounds somewhat easy, right? Like, oh, I can do that. I, could, I can maybe strive to have less of myself. I can ask God to, to allow myself to be moldable. But again, because we're willed people, we have to also will for God to be able to work us over in this way. The second thing I think we need to notice comes from Philemon. It matters how we treat those who have wronged us. So now I think what God is molding us into, this is an example of how that works itself out. In other words, the actions we take, the decisions we make, the way we treat people who have wronged us will show us what kind of a vessel we've allowed ourselves to be made into, right? And so the story is that um, Onesimus... um, uh, you know, has, a, a, there's a slave, and the slave, we don't know what the story is, how uh, the slave came to serve Paul, but Paul's like, look, you know, I want to send him back to you. Why? Because he's useful to you, right? So speaking of useful vessels, he's useful to you, right? Now, Onesimus' name actually means useful. So in one sense, he's literally useful, right? Uh, Paul says, formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you. And so what's happened is in the meantime, um, you know, this runaway slave, we, th- we don't know why he ran away or anything of that, has converted, and Paul wants to now send him back as a Christian, and he's asking, receive him back, right? Forgive him. He can be useful to you now. Again, so it's, it's a pun, but I think Paul's thinking, like, as a Christian, he's been terribly helpful to me. He can be helpful to you as well. And then I love that line, refresh my heart in Christ receive him back. So as we allow ourselves, as we try to be clay that God can mold into something useful, something honorable uh, to him, then the way we treat others, for example, is an example of, well, that's a, a litmus test of how, what are we being molded into? What have we allowed ourselves to be molded into? God, of course, is the potter who's just desperately trying to make something beautiful and useful and good and holy. We're the ones that are busy mucking that up, right, by getting in the way. But again, it matters how we've 
uh, treat those who have wronged us, and it evidences to those around us of where we stand in relationship to he who is the potter. And again, this takes not just forgiveness on our part, but it takes our ability to look past ourselves, past the ways that maybe we have been wronged, and to see the value in another person. Right? So again, that, that mug, if you saw it sitting on my shelf, you know, it, you, you might not notice it, right? But to me, it, it has some value. But, but the other couple pieces of pottery that, that I own were made for me by students. And one was gifted to me with just the, the nicest, maybe one of the nicest notes I've ever received from a student. And she wasn't even my mentee. Uh, in the program at, at Biola, she just said, look, you know, I always enjoyed my sessions with you. You, you. you helped me through a lot of difficult moments, even though you didn't know you were doing that with the way you led sessions, and so I wanted to make this for you, right? So it's a bowl. I also don't use that uh, either um, because I don't want to risk breaking this nice gift that was given to me. But again, it, you look at that, and I mean, you know, for all you know, I bought it at Hobby Lobby or something like that. But no, but it was, it was made for me. It has meaning to me. And so again, as we think about the way that God wants to mold us into vessels and we allow ourselves to be, to be molded and to be used for honorable use, right? And then we see the way God is working in the lives of others. We need to move past ourselves and see value again, to pun on Onesimus' name, in those who are useful, Right? And that might not mean, I don't think it means there in the verse, utilitarian, accepting back because he can have a utilitarian uh, usage for you. But again, that we receive people as God sees them. We realize that they too are clay that God is forming, and so we accept them. But all of this culminates in our gospel reading tonight, which again is one of those moments in Scripture where you have to think, what is happening here? What is happening here? Great crowds accompanied Jesus, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own mother and father and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, maybe this was Jesus' clever ploy to just get people to quit following him. Right? Like, maybe he looked around and said, Man, I'm just so tired of this big crowd. How could I get them to quit following me? I know what. I'll tell them they can only follow me if they kind of measure up to this, this high demand. Right? But I, I don't think that's what's happening at all. I mean, Jesus is literally saying, if you're going to be my disciple, this is the relationship you need to have to your family. Now, remember last week's gospel, right? Last week's gospel admonished us not to invite our family to the dinner party, right? Not to invite those that we know who could repay us to our dinner parties, but instead to invite the poor, the hungry, the crippled, etc. So already there, we were getting this intimation from Jesus that, like, as a disciple, your relationship to your family changes, and your relationship to those who aren't your family, who can't really do much for you, will change as well. Now we're told to not only not invite them to your dinner party, but to hate them. But yet, this is difficult to hear because, you know, like, for example, the fifth commandment, Exodus 20, verse 12 says, honor your mother and your father. Seems difficult to honor your parents while you're hating them, whatever that hate means there, and that's, that's open for debate. It's unclear exactly what Jesus was thinking, but clearly he was saying, you need to have a preference. Your, your preferential treatment of others should come before your family. So how do we, how do, we do this? 
You know, how do we honor mother and father? How do we be in relationship with those who are closest to us while also desiring and trying to be a disciple of Jesus, which means hating those very people? Well, back in Luke 9, verse 51, Jesus said, or Luke tells us that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. So chapter 9, verse 51, the gospel of Luke changes and we're pointed literally towards Jerusalem. And of course, that journey towards Jerusalem is intended in Jesus's life to, he's going to literally give up everything. He gives up his relationship with his family, especially his mother. Matter of fact, on the cross, he gives his mother a new son to take care of her, right? And gives John a new mother. So Jesus, by setting his face to go to Jerusalem, he gives up everything, including relationship with his family. Um, He literally carried his cross, and the gospel after tells us that we should hate our family, says that we need to bear our own cross because if we don't, we cannot be his disciple. So hating our family is not enough. We also have to bear our cross. And then finally, at the very end of the gospel, we have to renounce all that we have or we cannot be his disciple. So Jesus gave up his relationship with his family. Jesus literally carried his cross. And Jesus gave up his greatest possession, his very life, did he not? So the Gospel of Luke already points us to this example of Jesus doing these very things that tonight's Gospel reading tells us to do. Hate our family, bear our cross, renounce our possessions. But we're still left asking, again, how do we do this? Because if we want to be disciples, and maybe I'm presuming we do, and I certainly hope you do, you know, how do we do this? What does it mean? Well, again, it certainly means, I think in light of last week's Gospel, is not just to think of uh, your family as priority because, again, there's that relationship there that results in the ability for them to reciprocate, to, to pay you back, right? But instead, to hate your mother and father, your brother and your sister, etc. Why? So that you can make room for others. I think that's what Jesus is getting at. Again, hate is not over against love per se, But it's thinking about those who are closest to you in such a way that it creates space so that you can also have room in your life for others. Those who aren't your your mother, those who aren't your father, those who aren't your wife and children or husband and children and brothers and sisters. Right. But again, it, it goes all the way down to our own life that I can't even love and like my own life enough that that it crowds out space for others. And so, again, I don't need to call my parents in Virginia and say, sorry, Mom and Dad, the gospel reading tonight says I have to hate you, so this will be the last phone call you ever get from me. (laughs) Right? I, I have not done that. I will not do that. You do not need to do that either. But it does mean that however I'm in relationship with my family, with my parents and my siblings and my kids and my wife, that, again, it needs to be in such a way that it's open to having others. When I bear my cross, I mean, Jesus literally picked up wood that had weight to it, right? So that's not the point, but bearing our cross means that whatever burdens come along, including forgiving others who maybe have wronged us, like we see in Philemon, or, or sickness, or challenges, or uh, whatever they are in our lives, that that bearing of the cross means that we take on those challenges and those trials in light of, in, in the assistance of God, not just ourselves, but willing to have those 
be born because God is with us in it. And then renouncing all that we have to be as disciples, again, is, doesn't mean we literally have to now go back to your apartment or your home tonight, pack it all up, take it to Savers, get rid of it all. That doesn't mean that, but it does mean how are you in relationship to these things, right? Do they crowd out space for other people because of our attachment to those things? Um, you know, when I, when I bear my cross, am I, am I being trusting in God or am I doing it myself? So these readings challenge us tonight to, to have a relationship, to remember that, that we're clay in the hands of God. And that we need to be moldable people and allow God to mold us into his image and to be conformed to him. And, and ultimately then hating and bearing and renouncing, I think, will be easier if we become the kind of vessel that's honorable to God. To be able to be made holy by and useful to the master of the house. And so as we're challenged from these readings about how to be faithful disciples, it involves a lot of giving up. It involves a lot of asceticism. And yes, in this case, some of it will in fact hurt. But in the end, it's good for us. Again, there's a reason the scriptures depict the Christian life in terms of exercise and ascesis, right? Because when you exercise, it does hurt, but there's benefit to it. And asceticism is the same. It may hurt, but in the end, good comes from it. So may we be reminded that as baptized Christians, God expects this of us, not because he expects us to do it on our own, but of course that he gives us all that we need to be that moldable clay in his hands. So as we receive the body and blood of Christ this evening, remind it yet again that we receive the grace that comes with it. May that grace continue to soften us in the hands of the potter. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.